Hello to those of you who have come in since I did the announcements, and welcome to those of you who have joined us online since the start of the service. I'm so glad you could be here with us today and for the technology that allows that. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I'm so glad that we can have this time together. Today we are starting a new series that we'll be working through for the month of August. We're going to be working through the book of Colossians. And uh, I'm excited. I love this book. I think this is one of the great books of the Bible. It's certainly one of my top 66. Hey, very good. Good, polite laughter. I appreciate it. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that all of it is valuable and instructive and good for training us up in all sorts of godliness. Pray that you would open your word to us today, that you would open our hearts to your word, that we would hear from you, that we would learn something, that we would be able to be more like your son after today. In your name we pray. Amen. The epistle or letter to the Colossians was written in the early 60s AD by Paul the Apostle. It was written while he was in prison. We call it one of the prison epistles. And it was probably while he was in Rome following the events of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts ends with Paul arriving in Rome in chains. He's already a prisoner when he gets to Rome. And this book seems to have been written after that book ends. Paul would eventually die in Roman captivity. He would be executed on the orders of the emperor Nero. But that's not for several years yet. That's about AD 65. We think Colossians was written more like AD 62. Paul speaks in a number of his letters about his impending death. But that doesn't feature anywhere in this letter. Paul was a prolific writer. Of the 27 books in our New Testament, 13 of them, so almost half, are letters that he wrote to various churches and individuals. And the letter to the Colossians is interesting for a number of reasons. First, Colossians is written to a church in the city of Colossae, which Paul had never visited. This is not a church that Paul started nor is it filled with people that he discipled. And I find that interesting because you know what's another church that Paul didn't start and is filled with people he didn't meet? This one. It is, however, located near the city of Ephesus, as in the letter to the Ephesians, which brings us to the second thing to note about the letter. Colossians is interesting because of the similarities that it bears to the letter to the Ephesians, which we talked about last week. But where Ephesians focuses on the church as the body of Christ, Colossians is far more focused on the superiority and the perfection of Christ. The third thing which is interesting about Colossians, and we, don't, we won't talk about this anymore today, but it's good to know as we start, is that it was likely sent alongside another letter which we have also in our Bible, the book of Philemon. Philemon was one of the leaders of the church in Colossae. And that's just something to keep in mind as you read this letter, and maybe if you decide to read Philemon this week while you're at home, to just see them side by side. That's a bit of background on the book. So with that in mind, let's read the first chapter together. I think we're going to have it up on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy." For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. 
I hope that you noticed in that passage how many times and how many of the themes that we discussed last week from Ephesians 1 about who God says that we are reappear in the letter to the Colossians. I hope it jumped off the page for you how emphatically Paul calls us loved, forgiven, and called. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're not doing a redux. Verses 15 to 20 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Scholars have described this passage as a poem or perhaps a hymn. I say perhaps because we can't be sure. We don't exactly have the writings that this would have come from. It's not like we can check with Paul. and It's not like we have a hymn book from the first century. But there is another passage of Scripture that does something similar in the letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, 6-11, Paul seems to be quoting from a hymn. In fact, we're so confident about this that many Bibles format this section differently than the text surrounding. In fact, it looks more like the way that they format the Psalms. Here, let's read it together. This is the hymn from the Philippians. Starting in verse 5, well, this is Paul still making a bit of commentary. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, colon. And then he starts quoting a hymn. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And this is important because it means that Paul is referencing material that already existed. He's not coming up with these ideas. Paul isn't the source of this. He's speaking of truths that are already circulating in the Christian community. I think we have up on the screen for you the, um, the, the hymn from, oh, that's a lot of text, the hymn from, the, um, from Colossians. The Colossians hymn is in two parts. The first part focuses on Jesus as the creator. And as you can read it there on the screen, you can see what I'm talking about. It focuses on Jesus as the creator, as the second divine person of the Trinity, and his universe-scale greatness. The second part, which starts in verse 18, suddenly zeroes in on Jesus' work of redemption and resurrection. Where in the first part, he's the creator of mountains and rivers and galaxies... In the second, he is rescuing us from sin and death and raising us to new life, both figurative and literal, all because of his work on the cross. Paul's focus on the deity and the supremacy of Christ is important simply on its own. This is a crucial matter and one that makes a huge difference in our lives from day to day. But in addition to that, and this is one of the themes for the letter to the Colossians, Paul is bringing it up because the Colossian church was facing a major issue of syncretism. Now, syncretism is the idea that you take two separate ideas, or usually practices, and you try to make them work together. You try to kind of squish them together. And if you can handle the metaphor, it's where you, it's be like if you have one dish and then you season it, right? 
So you would season or pepper one ideology, or in this case religion, with some ideas and concepts and practices from another. Early Christians had to face pressure towards syncretism from two sides. On the one hand, they had a group who Paul refers to in the letter to the Galatians as Judaizers. And these are a group who advocated that Christians, in their loyalty to the Messiah, should complete that loyalty by adhering fully to the law of Moses as practiced by the Jewish people. And if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, you'll know that Paul doesn't take kindly to this idea. On the other side, Christians faced the problem of syncretism from Greco-Roman paganism. The challenge here was that in many ways, it felt like you could get away with it. It felt like in a lot of ways you could be a Christian and also sacrifice to the Greek gods or to the genius of the emperor or whatever it was that was going to make you socially acceptable, to make Jesus just one among many gods. And this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament when Israel would turn aside and worship other gods. It's not that they stopped worshiping Yahweh. The temple was still there, and the the Levites were still doing their thing, but that they were also acknowledging and honoring and worshiping these other gods. But as we've just spent eight weeks exploring, Jesus is not one among many gods. Jesus is the only God. To be faithful to him is to renounce all others. Now, I do want to be a little bit careful here, because an opposition to syncretism, which is good, is not an opposition to everything outside of the Bible and Christian tradition. As they say, all truth is God's truth. Catches is a truth. However, syncretism is better expressed as trying to bring beliefs and traditions that are opposed to the Bible into regular Christian practice. So, for example, the Bible does not teach that the earth is flat. Accepting the truth that the earth is round is not syncretism because it's not going against what God has already taught. The study of viruses and contagious disease and how to treat them and how to avoid them is not syncretism. The Bible doesn't have anything to say on those topics, and where it does, it simply is speaking to the best practices available of that time. The Law of Moses doesn't talk about penicillin, but it does talk about washing your hands. Do you see what I mean? Nod. Good. On the other hand, when the culture around us has its own ideas about sexuality and sexual expression, and where and when that can be expressed and those ideas are contrary to what God has commanded in the Bible, then trying to adopt or defend those socially accepted ideas and bring them into Christianity, as many have done, is an example of syncretism because it involves discarding something that God has explicitly given us. Let's talk about some more examples of syncretism that we face today. The Colossians were facing syncretism in worshiping the Greco-Roman gods and the cult of the emperor. We don't really face that sort of pressure today. We don't have a pressure to also worship, but we do face pluralism and the pressure by society to say things like, all paths lead to God. Have you heard that one? That's a kind of syncretism. Paul is all about Jesus as the only way to salvation. It is in him we have salvation, 
the forgiveness of sins, and no other. As Peter says in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Oh, they've got the actual verse up there, so I don't have to paraphrase. What's another syncretism that we face today? I'd suggest that there are major parts of what we would call the prosperity gospel that are syncretistic. Without getting too deep into the specifics of the doctrine, because we could certainly do a whole series on that, this is an aspect of Christian theology that Paul specifically warns about in one of his letters to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, we read, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. If that's not a description of syncretism, I don't know what is. But look at the root. It's not that there was some great sin that they wanted to get into. It's just that they loved money. For many of us, this looks more like a love of security. Because isn't that really what the issue is with money? Right? We want to feel safe. We want to be secure. We don't want to have to worry. We want to be able to order skip the dishes when we feel like it. Right? That's usually what's going on. That's a very human and relatable feeling. And yet, it can lead people astray. And does lead people astray. And one aspect of the prosperity theology that many people are attracted to is the aspect of control. And the idea that you have some control over what happens to you by how you act. Whether because of an evil that you have done or because of the good that you have failed to do, in some way you've earned this disaster that's befallen you. On the flip side, you want to be able to say that when some windfall occurs, in some way you can take credit for it. And this relates to another syncretism that I see Christians engage in quite regularly. All the time I hear this. And this is the idea of karma. Karma is not a Christian idea. Karma is not the idea that you get what you deserve. It's not what goes around comes around. It's not even you reap what you sow, which is a more Christian idea. Karma is the idea that over the course of many lifetimes and reincarnations, you have accumulated a debt, referred to as a karmic debt, and that the suffering that you face today is payment on that debt. Do you see how this relates to something like a prosperity theology? You're suffering today because of the evil that you did, though in this case it's because of the evil in a past life. And inherent in this idea is reincarnation which the Bible quite explicitly denies. We read in Hebrews 9.27 that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But on the contrary, the Bible and Paul in this passage pleads with us to maintain the purity of the good news that we have received from God and not to pollute it with teachings and doctrines that come from sinful men or worse, demons. In the letter from Jude, in verse 3, because there's only one chapter in the letter from Jude, he writes, I urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. 
Look at the harsh words that Paul uses in Galatians 1.8 to describe those who would corrupt the gospel message. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So this first chapter of the letter to the Colossians is Paul addressing this issue of syncretism. It's Paul saying, I know this is the issue that you're dealing with, but Jesus is all you need. Jesus is what's over it all. Jesus needs no additions. Syncretism is a serious issue. And so Paul spends this whole chapter extolling the greatness, the supremacy, and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And we're going to continue to examine the issues presented by the book of Colossians in the following weeks. So I hope that you'll join us as we continue to take time and let the Bible speak to us. Because there's so much more that Paul has to say. There's so much more that the Bible has to say to our lives today. And I hope that you'll be part of that with us. Let's pray and end for today. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for a new series, God, a new beginning. Thank you for a fresh vision, a fresh breath from your spirit into our lives. We pray that we would chew on these thoughts. We pray that this would be something that comes up again for us throughout our week. That we would think about where in our lives we've adopted ideas and practices that go against what you've already taught. That we would remain faithful to what you've given us. That we would hold fast to the perfect Christ that you've given us so generously. Pray that you would be with us. In your name, amen.